0: You are entering the Freedom Hut.
1: President Trump heads to the border tonight to make his case to the American people about why we need funding for a wall. Will he prevail or are we heading for another government shutdown? Plus, it looks like none of the three embattled Virginia Democrats plan to resign. We'll have updates for you on that story. And also, is anti-Semitism rising in the Democratic Party? We'll have a friend join on that topic coming up on the Buck Sexton Show. This, this
2: is the Buck Sexton, Sexton Show. Sexton. Where the mission, where mission is to decode what really matters with
1: actionable intelligence. One,
2: small Make no mistake. America.
3: You're a great American again.
1: The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate.
0: Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton.
3: It is Buck Sexton. Now. I'm heading out to El Paso, Texas, right now, and uh, we are going to do a job. We're going to continue to do what we're doing. I think we've made a lot of progress. We've actually uh, started a big, big portion of the wall today in a very important location, and uh, it's going to go up pretty quickly over the next nine months. That whole area will be finished. It's fully funded. Uh, construction, which I know a lot about, has uh, begun, and it's a much a better wall, much stronger wall, and a much less expensive wall that we've been building. And we're going to have a lot of wall being built in
1: the, last, in the next period of time. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, my friends. Great to be back with you here on this Monday. So the president is uh, still fighting for this wall funding. Democrats, of course, are completely dug in. Opposition as uh completely... As, as completely set as it could ever be. I mean, the Democrats aren't, aren't budging an inch on any of this because it's all about a win for Trump, and they know that. They don't want to give Trump a win. They want it to be Trump cave to them. doesn't matter what this means for the country. doesn't matter what it means for the border. They don't really care about either of those things when push comes to shove. They care about their power and their future in the jobs that they have in Congress. That's what they care about. Um, and they also care about continued flood of illegal immigrants into this country illegal aliens roaming the interior at a rate of now who knows I mean the, the number of illegal aliens in in the United States as I've discussed it before they say it's 11 million that's laughable it's much closer to 20 and there are plenty of sources including border patrol and immigration and customs enforcement who can't get, the thing is, they have to go with the official number, which is based on census data, because there isn't a single official number elsewhere in the government, because government agencies are prohibited from collecting information. The libs don't want us to know how many people are in this country illegally. The government itself does not want us to know, because then people would recognize we've been scammed for decades, for decades. And they don't want to deal with the consequences of that. They don't want to believe that the American, well, they don't believe that the American people can be trusted with that information. You see, we're too xenophobic. We, we, we bring in a million legal immigrants every year to let them permanently live as part of our family in America forever, a million a year. And we're still called xenophobic by the left. A million people. That's a major city worth of immigrants every year. And we're told that we're xenophobic because we just want people to come in as part of that 1 million. We don't want an extra 3 or 4 or 500,000 every year. It's a few hundred thousand illegal crossers at the border, and it's half a million visa overstays every year. Now, not all of them stay permanently. I get that. But I look at these numbers. I know what the numbers are. The number's going up by a quarter of a million to half a million you know, every year, depending on the year, of illegal illegal aliens in the country. It has to be has to be what else is happening well they're all going to canada i don't think so they're definitely not all going back to honduras or mexico or el salvador or wherever they're not going back to china and bangladesh and india and the other places we're seeing illegal aliens cross trump is right on this issue and by the way their latest polling today shows that trump is at rasmussen has him at 52 percent approval which is fantastic for this phase of his presidency and Re- uh, Republicans are more trusted than, than Democrats on immigration by not a wide margin, but by a real margin. People, The American people, according to the poll out, I saw today, trust Republicans more on immigration. What does that tell you? What's the difference between Republicans and Democrats on this issue? Enforcement. Enforce the laws. That's where we're really separate from the Democrats. They do not want laws to be enforced anymore. Uh, by the way, it's nine points higher than at the time of the uh, of the shutdown. Um, Producer Mike just gave me that information here. So now, as I, I look at where this is heading, because we, we're we're gonna we're about to hear all kinds of of uh, of sob stories about you know what the shutdown is going to do again, and I'm not saying there wasn't real uh, there weren't real uh, adverse consequences for good folks. There were. There's no question. But oh my God, the media, and remember, none of that had to happen if Pelosi and Schumer just would give $5 billion to build necessary, asked for by Border Patrol, asked for by ICE fencing at our southern border. So yeah, I mean, from a from a process standpoint, Trump is responsible for this, but he's not actually responsible for what happened here. All Democrats have to do is give the money for a fence at the southern border, which is what sound border policy requires. That's all they have to do. But they won't do it because they won't give Trump a win and because they don't want the border to be secure. Let me give you, to that to that point, Exhibit A as to why is it that Buck comes on radio night after night and says Democrats are a de facto open borders party. There's a lot of, they use a lot of, you know, oh, no, we, we're not open. Open borders, I mean, you just come and go as you please. We're not for that. And they want there to be They want the status quo of continued large numbers of illegal aliens to come into America and stay. That is what the Democratic Party wants. Full stop. I mean, this just it's just obvious. It's just true. They like the mass violation of our laws. They like the lawlessness that creates also a dependency on government in this country by people that aren't supposed to be here and are going to need additional help and assistance. And, and and also they view it as just creating new voters. For people who say, oh, illegals don't vote. One, I don't believe that. I don't know what the numbers are, but I don't believe that illegals don't vote. And two, because you have some states where they give driver's licenses, their motor voter laws, register them at the DMV. It's just not, and there have been some cases of people that are voting who are illegals. But Texas, I know, is looking into this now. But their children are going to grow up in this country, and they're going to vote. And I understand how this works, right? The mom and dad are illegals, or mom or dad is an illegal, and you're going to want to support the party that tells you that mom or dad were right all along, and there's nothing wrong with you know this is just part of the American dream now. So there's obvious political benefit for the Democrats from this, obvious, and we all know it. But in case the the reasoning I just took you through is not enough, we now have the Democrats showing us their hand once again they want a limit as part of the negotiation that broke down over the weekend i think it's back on again but as part of the negotiation for uh, to avoid a government shutdown and that involves border funding democrats want a limit on immigration and custom enforcement detention beds essentially they want a limit on how many people ice can hold in custody ice is currently authorized to hold forty thousand people but there are 49,057 immigrants in detention as of this week. So I think, it, one, it's fascinating that NBC here says that uh, President Trump has repeatedly said ICE is holding dangerous criminals, including murderers, uh, while ICE held immigrants in fiscal year 2018 who collectively were convicted on 54,630 charges. Okay, Only 1,641 of the charges were homicide. So the current crop of illegal aliens in custody. See, this is you always have to read between the lines with the lib media on immigration. The current crop of illegal aliens in ICE custody is responsible for one thousand six hundred and forty-one murders. That's a lot of dead Americans for this illegal alien process to continue playing out, isn't it? I'm I, I'm just I'm just saying if if we enforce the law in this country, if we did not have a a lawless policy when it came to illegal aliens in the American interior, we'd be 1,641 Americans richer. We'd have a a whole bunch more people around. But I think it's interesting. NBC, well, of the 54,000 criminal charges, only 1,600 are murder. Okay, well, also, how many are assault? How many are uh, aggravated battery? How many are sexual assault, rape? How many are, uh, you know, just go down the list. Robbery, burglary, armed robbery. You know, we get into that. We're certainly into the thousands there. OK, so I-, I thought that illegal aliens don't commit crimes that are better than Americans because that's what Democrats tell us all the time. Democrats want us to believe that illegal aliens are better and more law abiding than than um, Hispanic Americans, black Americans, Asian Americans, white Americans, everybody. They're better than all of us. Magically, the only people who come across the border, according to Democrats, are just better than the rest of us, the ones who come across illegally. Wow, uh, that's, that's quite a system we have set up. I guess we're just really lucky, aren't we? Nonsense, right? We know this. It is a big pile of malarkey. Um, but they want fewer beds. They want fewer beds, and this is the key point. Because Democrats are complicit in what is happening right now to our immigration system and is happening as a result of decisions made by tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of illegal aliens who have gotten word about this. The system is overwhelmed. We cannot process all of the people who are coming, and we legally cannot turn them away if they know what to say. So we, we now have a southern border. This is all a fact and I've spoken to Border Patrol and Immigration Customs Enforcement at the highest levels about this, and they have confirmed it to me in no uncertain terms. We have a southern border where if you know how to play the game you, and, and you're willing to be a tiny bit patient with the detention process, you will end up in the interior of the United States. And we do. And people say, oh, no, Bach, there's going to be a hearing and they're that, nonsense. They are never going to see the inside of a courtroom. We cannot handle this. Our system is not set up for this, and the Democrats know that. So what do they want to do? They want to de-resource, defund critical parts of the enforcement architecture for our immigration laws inside this country. Fewer beds for ICE detainment. You know what that means? Fewer people can be held and and then deported. It means that they'll say, well, now you need to do more prosecutorial discretion with who you're going to hold and then deport from the country. They want to make it more difficult. They want there to be fewer resources available to the people that are charged with enforcing U.S. law. And in this case, holding and and processing and booting out of the country a lot of people that really should not be here. You know, if you are an illegal alien and you have killed somebody, once you have served your sentence, I really don't want you in this country. You should be gone back to your country. Right? We do not need illegal alien murders. We do not need illegal alien rapists. Then you start working your way down the line and you say, hold on a second. Where do they draw the line? You know, at, at what point are they willing to say that our laws are just, that they should be enforced? The answer is Democrats don't want them enforced. But instead of being honest about this, what they do is throw up roadblocks every time Trump or anyone tries to assist our law enforcement and federal government agencies with processing, handling, dealing with this massive inflow of illegal aliens. We have people who say that, oh, we don't have an immigration crisis. I say we have a backlog of 900,000 immigration cases. That's going to take a decade to work, and we have more coming in all the time. Where does that backlog, what happens to the people in that backlog in the meantime? They stay in this country. They work here. They have kids here. They're never getting deported, folks. It's never happening. And as you have more and more coming, we're going to get to a million two in the backlog, a million five in the backlog. ICE is going to say, oh, we, we can't, we can't even handle, all we can do is try to process the murderers and the rapists because we can't handle the rest of the, uh. yeah, that's right. Overwhelming the system. The Democrats are going full alinsky on our border. That's what this is. We need to recognize that. And Trump is the only one who is really making this case in an effective way. He's right on the border. He has been right on the border. I certainly hope he has a chance to make the case tonight. Um, we will talk a bit about the the Democrat debacle in Virginia coming up here because Believe it or not, it got even worse over the weekend. Northam made it even worse. I mean, this guy is uh, Virginia. I love you, great state. I've spent a ton of time. I've probably spent more time in Virginia than any state except for New York. Uh, wonderful place. I don't know what your Democrat neighbors are thinking, though. I just, I don't know what I don't know what they're smoking, but sounds like fun. We'll be right back
3: we're up against people that want to allow criminals into our society now you explain that one you know most things you understand but they want to allow criminals into our society convicted felons kidnapping these are people that kidnap people the democrats want them to come into our society I don't think so kidnappings 20085. homicides that means murder Murderers two thousand twenty eight. I mean it's incredible. Sexual offenses 1,739. Just came out two minutes ago. Homeland Security, Department of Homeland Security. I don't know. Maybe we're in a different
1: country than I know of. How many how many thousands of murders, rapes, robberies, arsons? How many of those are you willing to accept from uh, the illegal alien community as just the cost of the cost of the way things are? Because of the Democrats see, I'm willing to accept the number zero because they shouldn't be in the country in the first place. So this isn't like oh, there's crime in any society. Yes, of course. I'm not saying we're ever going to get to a zero, a zero crime rate in America. There will always be people that you know choose the. Choose the wrong path and do the wrong thing and, and hurt their, their fellow human beings. That's, that's always, it's always existed, always will exist. We try to deal with it. We try to manage it and, and limit it as much as possible. But I, I think it's fair to say that when it comes to limiting crime from people who aren't in your country, I, I do not worry about crimes committed by people in, you know, by, by people in Vietnam because they're not being committed in this country. I do not worry about crimes being committed by people in Brazil because they're not in this country, right? But people who come into this country who aren't supposed to be here. That's a concern for me because, wait a second, they weren't supposed to be here in the first place. And this is the philosophical shift that Trump is trying to get people to understand. It's not that 1,600 murders by illegal aliens is... You know, it's not that that's a little too high. It's 1,600 murders too high. What, what is going on here? Why do we have anyone in the country illegally who is, you know, living in the shadows and going through all this difficulty and, and committing murders? Right? This shouldn't be happening at all. Because if we enforced our immigration laws, they would not be here, period. So our tolerance for illegal alien crime should be substantially lower than our tolerance for societal crime. Cause you know, nothing is perfect, right? But again, Trump is making this case. I hope he really digs into tonight. I think he will, I'm gonna be watching live right after the show. So we'll talk more about that tomorrow, but let's discuss Virginia's situation in a moment.
2: Well, it has been a, a difficult week. And, and you know, if you look at Virginia's history, we're now at the 400 year anniversary, uh, just 90 miles from here. Uh, In 1619, the first uh, indentured servants from Africa landed on our shores in Old Point Comfort, what we call now Fort Monroe. And while
1: also known as slavery. Yes. This guy Northam, what is his deal? He's given an interview to CBS. They're really being very, very gentle with him. I think there were some weird restrictions, too. Uh, maybe Northam interviewed with Washington Post or somebody where they're, they're doing everything they can to help keep this guy's political career afloat because it has been struggling mightily uh, since his whole blackface, oh, no, that's not me, but everyone knows it is him controversy. How can anyone take this guy seriously? How can anyone uh, pretend like he's a, a person of, of substance, I I don't know, Um, but here we are, Democrats just recognizing that I think the most likely person to resign out of Northam, Fairfax, and Herring is Fairfax. Fairfax has now called for an FBI. Remember, he's lieutenant governor. Two women have accused him of sexual assault, and both of them on the record had sexual relationships with him, so there's they are entirely credible allegations. That does not mean they are proven allegations. There is a difference, certainly important for law, but also important for us to keep in mind for due process reasons. Um, They are unproven, but they are credible allegations, to be sure, which is different than the allegations made against Kavanaugh, which were not credible, but they wanted them to be treated. The media, the Democrats wanted them to be treated as already proven. By the mere fact of the allegation. Here we have a different situation of, oh, no, these are credible allegations against Fairfax. And, and I find it, I mean, I find them entirely believable, given the, the circumstances that he has, or that, that the women rather have alleged. Um, but he may be the one who was forced to resign here. Uh, looks like there may be te- public testimony from these women. Fairfax has called for an FBI investigation, which I've noticed is now, this is now the Hail Mary Pass tactic of Democrats or left wingers who are in trouble. I want an FBI investigation. Uh, Notice how they wanted this. they, They wanted to inflict this on Kavanaugh and it did nothing, which we all knew it would do nothing because this wasn't an FBI matter. The FBI really is in no position to investigate or adjudicate this. And they said, well, it's really a background check. Well, the FBI doesn't, you know, they kept changing, moving around the goalposts that the FBI, just so there'd be some investigation to give them more time to figure out another smear of Kavanaugh. But Fairfax here calling for the FBI, you have two crimes, alleged crimes, one committed allegedly in North Carolina, the other allegedly committed, I think, in Virginia. I'm not sure about that. The two different states, that much I remember. And the FBI would have jurisdiction in neither place. So what is the FBI supposed to do here? But it's it's just a talking point to say, oh, no, I, I want to prove my innocence. Bring in the FBI. Like, the FBI are just these magicians who can figure out everything right away. Still looking for that Russia collusion, some of those FBI guys. I don't think they're going to find it either. I think that Russia collusion investigation is going to get shut down real soon. But I think Northam knows uh, that if he just plays his cards right at this point, he he can stay here's what he said play three
4: do you think you still deserve this job when so many people are calling for you to step down
2: well again we we have worked very hard uh... we've had a good first year and and i'm a leader uh... i've been in some very difficult situations life and death situations taking care of sick children and right because now you're
4: a doctor yes. right
2: now virginia needs someone that can heal uh... there's no better person to do that than a doctor Virginia also needs someone who is strong, who has empathy, who has courage, and who has a moral compass and that's why I'm not going anywhere
1: man, there's a lot of chutzpah on display with this guy, pretty brazen stuff from the good doctor. Uh, I mean ne- never mind the fact that he starts out the interview by calling slavery indentured servitude which is which was a which was a wow moment like. This guy I've, I've never heard somebody make that mistake before um, but I mean you know you, you could get into anyway it it was that was a bit of a surprise but then he goes into saying that he's the right man he's the perfect man for the job of governor right now he has thrown the state into a a, a governmental crisis and yet he is the perfect man to fix it you know this is like the stockbroker who once he's lost your life savings is like you don't understand. I'm more motivated than anybody to make that money back for you. So borrow some money from your brother and give you know, that's, that's who this guy is now. I'm the, since I've, since I burned your house down, I'm exactly who you want to build your house for you. Now I owe you. <laughs> this guy is whoo man. He is next level, but I think he's staying. I don't think he's going anywhere. I don't think, I don't think, uh, I don't think herring is going anywhere. I think that Justin Fairfax is the one in the greatest jeopardy of resigning, which would mean that as this plays out, the Democrat Party in Virginia would have three politicians all in trouble, two of them admittedly and provably for wearing blackface a long time ago, then saying ridiculous stuff about it now and lying about it now and everything else. And then a black guy who's accused, who's lieutenant governor, without any actual proof other than the accusations, he says he didn't do it and he's the one who might resign. That is uh, an interesting look for the Democrat Party, I've got to say. We'll be right back
5: from actual experts the UN from the from Donald Trump's own administration saying how dire this is Uh, the UN said we have 12 years before complete disaster you talk to the representative of the Marshall Islands and he's calling it uh, what could amount to genocide if we allow things to go as they are the reports aren't just hey it's gonna get bad the reports are people will die millions and millions and millions of people will die there's real economic damage that can happen as well billions of dollars Mm -hmm. in economic damage from from crops to to deaths, to losing oceanfront homes and businesses in over the next century.
1: Dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. So be good for goodness sake, whoa, somebody's coming. Dr. Venkman, one of his, I mean one of Bill Murray's finest roles. that was Katie Turr, not Dr. Venkman, just saying crazy stuff. I got news for you, Miss Turr. Who's one of these people that all of a sudden, I'm supposed to, she's she kind of came out of the woodwork over at MSNBC. And now now she's an anchor. So she must know something. These People don't know anything about anything. I, I'm amazed at, at how flimsy and, and how weak the intellectual depth is with so many of these uh, these TV, these TV news anchor types, um, you know, and, uh, you know, Katie Turr. I've got news for her. Yes, you know what? Millions and millions of people are going to die. In fact, billions of people are going to die. We are all going to die. Hopefully we will have children and replenish our species, but we're all going to die. It has nothing to do with climate change. This is normal. People cannot and would not think this way if they had not been endlessly propagandized to. And if they did not, you know, th- there is a place in the human mind, some would even say in the human soul, where, where we, we desire purpose. It's one of the reasons why you actually want work. It's why, you know, an endless, uh, a, a life that was nothing but lying on a beach eating grapes, you know, would be fun for uh, a few days, maybe a few weeks, maybe a few months. But after that, you're going to be a fat, lazy guy who eats a lot of grapes and is sunburned. You know, y- you actually want purpose whatever that is whether it's you know raising the best family you can being the best you can at your job helping the most people you can you know serving your country as best you can people desire purpose but people also desire higher meaning many of us fill that with god many of us have that is the higher purpose is to serve what is eternal and and celestial and and you know what is the purpose of our existence which is to love and honor God. That, that's what, what many people do and, and many people view as their reason for being here. By the way, I mean, I don't spend a lot of time talking about religious stuff on the show because that's, that's not my brief. But it, 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 from a, a political and philosophical perspective, this really matters because what's happened is that that part of the mind, and you know my line on this, and it's true, it's that climate change is a religious belief for people who think they are too smart for religion, what they've done is they've just inserted this climate alarmism into that, and their purpose is—because, you know, the earth, if you don't believe in God, the only thing that is eternal is the earth. And, in fact, primitive religions worshipped the earth, right? This is—you this is you get into people who are animists, who, who you know, impute uh, celestial or, or create deities out of inanimate objects, right? I mean, you, you know, you have— The the most primitive religions worship the sun, worship the moon, worship the stars or, you know, or bears, because bears are big and scary, although I'm a big fan of bears. Uh, Now what you have is a kind of new age Earth worship where our species only exists to protect the Earth and people really believe this and oh by the way a fringe benefit of all of this or for many of them it's the it's the actual central purpose because they don't care about anything other than the self they are they are truly and cosmically selfish and th- what they realize is that they can mobilize the masses on this climate change silliness uh, although it is very serious because if they get their way you're going to have you know, people will die if they get their way You know, people will freeze to death in winter. People will die of malaria. I mean, there will be consequences if we give up fossil fuel. I mentioned the Great Leap Forward. 60 million people starved to death in the 20th century. 60 million because of crappy government central planning. All right. Millions starved in the Ukrainian famine because of crappy government central planning. What they're telling us is is the is the converse of historical reality. What the Katie Turs and, you know, she's just representative. She's just spewing the talking points that all the other bigger, more famous, uh, stupid, rich TV people say. And, and but, but what they offer to us, what they give us is that if you don't engage in this kind of massive central planning, that's when all the terrible things will happen. If If you don't let the state make all these decisions for you and in your life in order to prevent the awful things, you know, th- then you're complicit in the the famines and the floods that are come. I mean, you know, let me tell you what the Marshall Islands is really thinking about, which I know you're up late at night worried about the Marshall Islands. The Marshall Islands is thinking, yeah, we got to, we got to be all in on this scam because all these wealthy countries where they're actually building stuff and doing stuff, productivity, that's what we you know. Wealth is human endeavor that, you know, is pooled together and the excess of that human labor or or rather the fruits of that human labor is wealth. That is wealth. It is us doing stuff, making things. That is that is what creates wealth and prosperity. Right. The countries that have a lot of that, I'm sure Marshall Islands has some nice tourism and probably some. uh, I don't know. Very good potassium. No, that's Kazakhstan. But I'm sure they, uh, you know, they, they do some things. They want to be in on the scam, and I understand it. It's a good scam to be in on, which is that the developed world, the first world, is supposed to, and this is at the heart of all this intergovernmental panel on climate change stuff, the first world is supposed to subsidize the economic progress of the third world in exchange for us being less prosperous ourselves by using less fossil fuel, or less hydrocarbon, right? That's what the game is. That's why there is a global Marxism, a global redistributive impulse that is at work here, or you could say a, a, a global globalism. It's a, it's a global globalism. Um, no, but really that is that is part of this, of this rubric, of this framework. They want to look at the developed countries and say, you, because... They they try to argue that we the reason we're wealthy is because of our exploit uh, exploitation of other countries. That's one of the primary myths that are perpetuated by Marxist intellectuals around the world. That the reason America's wealthy is because of our exploitation of other countries. Uh, but when that isn't enough, and they still of course believe that, they will say, well, the reason we're wealthy is because of our exploitation of planet Earth. And the only way to make amends for that exploitation is to make other places wealthier, giving them our wealth, so that they won't have to exploit too. That's only fair. You see, it's the same mentality, though, the same root fallacies about capitalism, about the creation of wealth, about the basics of economics. All of that is 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 encapsulated by this Green New Deal alarmism. And this Green New Deal stuff is, it is wackadoodle. You know, Ocasio-Cortez has some advisor who I think they just think is smart because he kind of looks like Malcolm Gladwell, so he must be smart. Uh, Libs love the, all the pretension of the intellectual class. They love the facade of intellectuals, but they don't actually want to have to have any knowledge and and argue with people who also have knowledge. They just want the benefits of appearing knowledgeable without the work that it requires to get there. This is a favorite thing of lips. Uh, They like to be ostentatious with the minimal knowledge they have so that they can belong to the class of elites that think of themselves as very knowledgeable but really aren't. But this guy went on Tucker Carlson's show and Tucker's like, look, the frequently asked question that you put out here when the new the Green New Deal rollout, um, when that happened, you know, the the frequently asked question said, you know, we're going to stop air travel and we're going to get rid of cow farts. And then Ocasio-Cortez's people said, oh, no, that's a forgery. That's a fake. It's Republicans making it up. And then it was, oh, no. It's not that. It was just a mistake from someone. But we didn't mean to put that out. And her advisor told Tucker that it never went out. That's just, They're just lying about it. They're just lying about it because what we saw with their ambitious proposal is that their ambition for the Green New Deal and for Ocasio-Cortez greatly, I mean monumentally, outstrips her knowledge, her wisdom, her critical thinking, all of it. And it is a a, (laughs) for some, it might be a sign of the end times that the most prominent and and the most influential Democrat in America right now is effectively on policy matters an ignoramus. That is troubling, but we cannot walk away from it. We have to stare this down and be honest about it. With only three days left until Valentine's, it seems like everybody is selling bouquets, drugstores, supermarkets, gas stations, you name it. Your special someone deserves the best, though. And that's why every Valentine's I order from my Rose Authority, 1-800-Flowers.com. Right now, you can get 18 red roses for $29.99 or upgraded 24 assorted roses plus a vase for $10 more. This is an unbelievable offer from 1-800-Flowers. 18 red roses for $29.99 or upgrade to 24 assorted roses plus a vase for $10 more. Miss Molly's getting flowers. Shh, don't tell her. From 1-800-Flowers, beautiful two dozen roses. I'm using this exact same deal. I recommend you do too. To order 18 red roses for $29.99 or upgrade to 24 red roses plus a vase for $10 more. Go to 1 800flowers.com, click that radio icon, enter code BUCK. That's 1 800flowers.com, radio code icon BUCK. Offer expires today.
4: My daddy ended up as a janitor, but his little girl got the chance to be a public school teacher, Woo! a college professor, a United States senator, and a candidate for president of the United States.
1: My daddy ended up as a janitor. I'm gonna get me a beer. Uh, okay. First of all, what's what's her beef with her dad? I mean, janitor is an honorable profession, providing a real service. And I, I mean this. I'm not. I'm. I mean this about any. I, I've done jobs that were not, you know, glorious jobs. And anybody who's ever done that has respect for people that show up and do a good job at a job that is needed every day. So I just didn't really like her whole, you know, my daddy was just a janitor, but, like, I'm a really important person running for president. I just don't—I I know a lot of politicians do this, okay? But that's—you know, this—yeah, this is America. You know, the, the parents work hard, and the kids have a shot to do something else. Well, I, have I have a question, actually, for you, Buck. Yeah. We're just discussing that here. Why do they think we care what their grandparents and parents did? I, Dude, I, I think it's all—I think it's the—you're so right. I think it's the political consultants— who tell them you know you've you've got to connect with the heartland and with the people and tell them you know you know he used to do this all the time John Edwards ambulance chaser in chief yeah and he used to always be like you know my my dad my dad worked in a in a, yeah. in a in a coal mine and what was oh and the other one oh the best one of all these days is is Kasich rhymes with well Kasich and uh, you know he he's gonna say something else but I can't he is um. He's always talking about how you know my daddy was a mailman. It's like yeah, okay, your dad had a job, which he received a paycheck for and healthcare benefits, and was probably able to retire, unlike a lot of the people I know these days. Like, what? Why are we supposed to feel sorry for them? Like, I don't understand what their problem is. You know, I, I think they just do this because they think that it makes them more relatable. I think yeah. it's weird. That's yeah, completely weird. I, I, I agree. I think that they think it normalizes them. Yeah, they think it normalizes. Like, I mean, like my, you know. My parents were, like, were were blue-collar and so, like, not fancy at all. But, like, I'm super fancy, so yay. I just think it's a weird—I'm glad you picked up on that, too, like, you and John, because it's just yeah. such a weird thing to say. Yeah. You know? My daddy was just a janitor. and he was just mopping up vomit all the time. It's like like your, your father was doing a, a, an honest day's work for an honest, you know, an honest yeah. wage, like— I don't think. Anyway, I, I I think it's weird, and I think a lot of a lot. Of, look, Kasich is a Republican. Yeah. A lot of uh, politicians do this. But I, yeah, I guess when you're when you are a politician, and you own like three or four homes, and your base doesn't. I guess you gotta like you know be more normal. <laughs> yeah, Elizabeth Warren is a socialist who's worth ten million dollars. Yep. I I think I told you Mike twenty recently, and you guys. Have, I mean, she says it's she marked it down as ten million, but I'm sure it's. I mean, it's probably higher than that. Um, but she's worth ten million dollars. I'm not worth ten million dollars. I'm not worth a million dollars. So I sit here and I say, okay, hold on a second. I'm being lectured about paying my fair share because I work three jobs and so I get taxed at a certain rate. I'm being told I should probably pay more. Meanwhile, I'm not worth anything and she's worth $10 million. I, I, need, to ex- I need someone to explain to me how that's supposed to work. But anyway, guys, she's she's out there and she she's obviously now officially running for president. I th- And, I, and I, there's a part of me that doesn't want to say this because... I think that she just has no shot. I mean, the whole 1 1024th Native American thing is just, that was such a blunder and so obtuse that, you know, I read in over the weekend because I was really curious. They feel like the left's answer to all this is oh, she didn't professionally advance because she said she was Native American. Now, let me say that that is highly, uh, highly subject to interpretation and you know the way that they went through this is to interview oh guess what the faculty of the university of pennsylvania law school and the university of harvard law school because that was the huge leap in her career she had a kind of you know undistinguished legal career before that and again i i don't like people who i don't like when people put down any state school some state schools are are considered elite but you know rutgers is a fine institution Rutgers, you can get a great education. There's some great lawyers that come from there, and I, I don't, I'm not casting any stones, but Rutgers as a just because of the way that Harvard Law School specifically works, you're not going to go from Rutgers in your undergrad to Harvard Law School as a professor. It's just not, or rather Rutgers as your JD to Harvard Law School as your professor as your as a professor, it just won't happen. And same thing, at University of Pennsylvania. I mean, those are both. I think Harvard is number two. Those are both considered top ten law schools. And Rutgers not a top. I don't think it's a top one hundred law school. So it just doesn't happen. And that it happened for her is on its face highly, highly suspicious. That Harvard listed her officially as a Native American for diversity purposes in their literature for a decade is also indicative of something that she can never explain. Because because the left says the Boston Globe proved this is their big thing. The Boston Globe proved that she's not a race fraud that she's not Focahontas. I don't buy that because I read through their whole analysis and all the things they say, first of all, they they do this whole dig in deep with, they said, okay, well, one professor on the hiring committee at Harvard said that, yeah, it came up that she was Native American in the hiring process. And then we asked him some more and he said, okay, well, maybe I misremembered. Essentially, they're like, they, they, this this guy got pressured into recanting is what happened. He's going to be, not welcome in the faculty lounge anymore at, at Harvard Law, because they all, they all love Elizabeth Warren. They all share her politics. They don't care that she's a fraud. See that's, And there was one professor who said that it came up. Why would a professor say that if it didn't happen? A lot of them would say it didn't happen because they're not idiots. They're Harvard Law professors. They understand when journalists are asking about this, they know what's going on, so they're lying for her. That's not That doesn't strike me as odd at all. It's an easy thing to lie about. Well, it didn't really come up to my recollection. You know, who's going to hold you to that? And you get to help Elizabeth Warren along the way. You know, her, her race fraud, you effectively give a bunch of libs on the faculty at Harvard who are super libs to wash this away, right? Oh, yeah, no, she's not, didn't engage in race fraud, sure. You know, they also say that, uh, so so that's the main thing. They ask these different professors who are on the hiring committees, and they all say that it was because of her amazing work and amazing work in the classroom and, I mean, it must have been really amazing because she's the only under she was the only person from a, a state law school that became a without at her time, at least was a professor at Harvard uh, in the law school. So it's just, you know, these are some. And she also, at key points in her career, made a very conscious effort to change her designation officially to Native American. So I don't buy that it didn't professionally advance her. I'm sorry, I don't. Because when, when she's asked, she goes into some meandering story about identity and members of her family had passed away. And I'm just like, so people in your family passed away who weren't Native American and you decided to start calling yourself Native American to identify with them? That is bizarre. But it did open up this other possibility to me, which is that maybe, maybe she's actually delusional. And, and the same way that Rachel Dolezal, I think Rachel Dolezal convinced herself that she was black. Now, that's crazy to you and me because she's obviously not black, but I think she convinced herself that she was black. You know, people can be convinced of a lot of things. There's actually a psychological condition that I've talked about because it comes up in discussions about transgenderism where uh, people want a limb to be removed because they think that they should not have it. Now, this is obviously a mental, a mental health disorder, but it is, it is a real thing. You know, people can think all kinds of stuff. Maybe Elizabeth Warren really did think she was the Native American. But is it it a better look for a would-be president of the United States to be utterly delusional? I'm not sure. You know, at least with the fraud thing, you're like, yeah, she played the system. You know, it's gross. We should make fun of her for it. And she's a fraud. But I understand why she did it. You know, it's like, okay, maybe that person's a bank robber. I don't agree with it. It's not okay, but. They were doing it to steal money, but if the bank robbers like, no, I'm not a bank robber. I'm actually a pink unicorn who's just getting money for the you know m- magical world that I'm building. You might say, "Whoa, we got a different kind of problem here." I don't know if that's what we're talking about with Elizabeth Warren, but I've I've read in detail the docs around her, and you know there, there's there's stuff up here. I mean, and now as you know, she's also. Filled out a state bar registration card for Texas with, uh, um, stating that in her own handwriting that she's Native American, and she would kind of turn it on and turn it off at different times in her adult life, which it, it's it's just not normal and it is inexplicable. I also look this this is my challenge to those who want to be who want to be big Warren supporters out there. And there's a bunch of them. This is my challenge. Okay, I just need someone to tell me. Why she decided, this is true, why Elizabeth Warren decided to plagiarize, (laughs) to plagiarize a French recipe, pretend that it was her own family recipe, and submit it to a Native American cookbook called Pow Wow Chow and list herself as Cherokee in the book. Producer Mike, do you have any theories on this? Because this is like what a, this is like something a crazy person would do. Uh, uh yeah, all right. it's bizarre. <laughs> it's really bizarre. Like it's not even her. I mean, she 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 plagiarized it. She took it wholesale from a from a like a Julia Child cookbook.
5: Yeah, she's
1: yeah. And and she's like, actually. Why, well, as you were speaking of this, me and John were were going back and forth on how if she really you know was maybe misled by her family early on in life and i just was like man she's been doubling and tripling and quadrupling down on this myth forever and it's just bizarre everything she does about it is just it's this bizarre behavior and it's just to me it's it's wait it does it, not matter how deep she goes right she just won't stop no digging. she won't I mean, she won't the lie just she, keeps she keeps it going it's 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 pretty amazing yeah. um then, then we had Warren, though, and here's her pathway, I think. She's got the whole social justice, economic warfare left thing going for her and, you know, the, the the hardcore left. I mean, the Democrats are insane, as you know. I mean, the Democrat Party, look, they're smart, normal, nice Democrats, but they don't run the party. They're not in charge. The Democratic Party is insane. It's an important principle for us to be working from. The Democratic Party is nuts. And Elizabeth Warren, though, I think... It's going to do surprisingly well am- among Democrats because she is going to go with this extreme anti-Trump position. Uh, play clip two.
4: Every day, there's a racist tweet, a hateful tweet, something really dark and ugly are we going to let him use those to divide us you know here's what bothers me by the time we get to 2020 donald trump may not even be president in fact he may not even be a free person
1: there you have a sitting democrat senator who is suggesting the president of the United States is going to be in prison in the next, what, year and a half? This is as gross as anything that, you know, all the people that say, oh, the undermining of institutions and look at what Trump says about Hillary and lock her up and, oh, I'm sorry, Hillary actually broke the law and got a pass. Full stop, okay? Hillary is a criminal. She just got away with it. That's what happened. People can tell me other things; they're making it up. They're delusional. But her saying that Trump will go to prison—this is going. To, she is going to pander to the most insane elements of the Democratic Party. It is going to be outrageous. She is going to try to turn herself into the epitome of the hashtag resistance. That's where she's going with this. She's going to make herself the fierce anti-Trumper and say the most vitriolic, nasty stuff. And I just want to say this ahead of time because the left has been telling us about how Trump is so uncivil and Trump, no, they just don't like Trump because when they roll up their sleeves and they try to they try to throw low blows, Trump just, just smacks them down, just lays them out cold, you know? And they don't like that. They don't like that. Now what you're going to see are a bunch of Democrats that are going to try to go after Trump. They're going to just kitchen sink everything they've got after Trump as nasty, as dirty, as undermining as they possibly can be. He's a racist, a misogynist, he should be in prison, he's a traitor, he's a criminal, all this stuff. And Elizabeth Warren is going to be one of them. And that's, at least in the short term, going to mean the left will forgive her. The left will let her stay in this, even though she's a joke. She's a joke. Not a funny joke, I might add. Has no charm whatsoever. Has absolutely no personal charisma or magnetism. I really don't understand why people like her and I'm at least like Tulsi Gabbard. You know, she could give me some surf lessons. sounds like fun. We'll be right back. I go hard for freedom every day. I try to represent the values that you and I share and fight with libs wherever I can to make sure the truth prevails, but it takes a lot out of me. You know what gets me going? Black rifle coffee. That's right. I need my cup of black rifle every morning and every afternoon because it is simply the best coffee you can get on the market. It is absolutely delicious. I mean, this stuff, whew, it's got a punch, I'm telling you. And the flavor is fantastic. Just pick the roast you like. I'm a big f- fan of the Freedom Blend, but you can also go full black or silencer or smooth. Go on the website and you will see. Have it delivered to you every month. Join the coffee club. This should be your coffee of choice. Wake up with America's coffee, Black Rifle Coffee. Visit blackriflecoffee.com and receive 15% off your order. That's blackriflecoffee.com slash buck for 15% off. Again, blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. Join the coffee club and 15% off your first order.
3: And ridiculous means deserving or inviting derision or mockery, absurd. Does he really mean that a tax on incomes over $10 million at 70%, which is widely popular with the American people, Is ridiculous. Is that an adult conversation? Yeah, I think he thinks it's ridiculous and it's confiscatory and that it's anti-growth. That would be his point. What is, will Derek Jeter or uh, another athlete not hit another home run because they're going to get taxed at 70? What's the economic behavior that he thinks it's anti-growth other than his own pocket? Adam, this is bullshit. I'm I'm not doing this. Steve, you got to answer the questions. I'm not. You got to, Steve.
1: I'm not. Steve Schmidt doesn't like asking the questions. You know, it's, yeah, it's anti-growth. What does that What does that mean? <laughs> about can, can we get Mr. Steve Schmidt, Mr. Iran, John McCain's terrible president, terrible losing presidential campaign, and and apparently was a was a a, a prolific leaker, from what I'm told by the way to the press about that about his own campaign. Um, can, can I can I just ask why this? I'm on MSNBC. I'm gonna answer things. I'm going to tell the people that Trump is a racist, a sadist, a monster, the devil, bad, stay Puff marshmallow man, but even meaner. You know, Steve Schmidt is this guy that is, is held up as somebody we should listen to on politics. I, look, I, 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 he was on solid ground there. He's the guy who's taking the Schmidt position here. I'm sorry, the uh, Schultz position here where, you know, a 70% tax rate is 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 bonkers and would have some bad Bad. If you actually made people pay that, it would have very bad... Look what's happened in New York State. They've lost billions in revenue because people who are wealthy are like, okay, New York State, you want to just take more of my money? I'm leaving. I'll keep my house here, but I'm going to go to another state and file for taxes there. Because there are consequences to these confiscatory left-wing socialist approaches. But Steve Smith doesn't want to answer questions. He doesn't like it. He's mad. He's bull. He <laughs> He was on his own podcast there? Who storms off their own podcast? Somebody comes into your house. You better tell them what's for dinner, if you know what I mean. You better tell them what time it is. You know, Steve Schmidt. It's on MSNBC. Hates Trump, but scared of question two. I just think that's such a such a weak move to, to bail on your own. To bail on your own show. I don't know. Guys, I promise you, I'll never bail. I'll never bail on this show. Like, I, I don't like what that that said. I'm just going to bail on my show. I don't like it. You know, it's like, uh, it's it's amazing. Oh, gosh. You know, we, we, I'm excited we're going to have my my buddy David Harsanyi join later. He was, a little side note, he's going to talk to us about um, anti-Semitism, the Democratic Party, Ilhan and Tlaib, uh, Ilhan Omar, rather, and Tlaib, uh, these two new female Congresswomen, Muslim Congresswomen who are just, going after Israel and are part of the uh, the BDS movement and, you know, trying to boycott, divest, and and they're really opposed to Israel. Uh, but, you know, David Harsanyi and I go way back. He actually was the first person that ever really encouraged me to write an editorial instead of a straight a news story for The Blaze. So well, I'm, a, I'm a Harsanyi fan from way back. He'll be joining us in a little bit. Daycare for all. This is... Another one of these issues that is uh, in our in our current moment of, oh, let's just offer everybody, you know, unicorns and rainbows and candyland land and, and somebody else will pay for it. And it's all going to be amazing. And the government never does uh, a bad job with mandates or, or with things that exceed its mandate. It, it's always government always knows what to do. Yeah, right. Uh, there's an op ed in The New York Times of The weekend. Daycare for All, the progressive to-do list is missing a very important idea. And uh, this woman is a columnist at The Nation, so she's very left-wing. I mean, The Nation is essentially a a communist front in this country. I don't mean that it's sponsored by the Soviet Union or something like that, but it it, it is so far left that for it to be taken seriously is, I think, uh, an affront to seriousness. But it is something that is representative of the far left Bernie Sanders wing of the Democrat Party. I mean, which is just open socialism, statism, and collectivism. The nation is at least honest about that, whereas the New York Times and others uh, much less so. But uh, this piece goes into how, yes, they're talking about free public college, health care for all, a living wage. These are all good things. But what about uh, how we need to have universal Uh, universal child care and this piece let me just say makes almost no effort I don't think it makes any effort I just I don't want to give you an a a complete blanket statement there without being but I'm pretty sure it makes no effort I've read through it a few times makes no effort to say how are you going to pay for this how are you going to pay for this I mean it tells you that, yes, people p- spend a lot of money in child care in a lot of places. And, and yes, this is a challenge for uh, for young couples where you have one person working, the other one, you know, can't stay home and have their same lifestyle. And and they but they can't really afford child care. And there's some interesting numbers about that, um, how 69 per, or rather in Alabama, for example, the Economic Policy Institute says that it's five thousand six hundred and thirty seven dollars a year for an infant and four thousand eight hundred and seventy one for a four year old, uh, which is sixty nine percent of the average rent and thirty three percent of the cost of in-state tuition at a four year college in Alabama. So, yes, childcare is expensive. But what about this quaint idea of people raising their own children and someone staying home with the children? Why do we have to abandon that? Now, one of the reasons why we are uh, one of the things about this that we're not supposed to really discuss is that one of the issues with childcare is that you have a an explosion in the last 30 or 40 years of single mothers. So that obviously makes the stay at home model uh, difficult because stay at home mom who wants to work is going to have to have somebody who's going to provide child care. Um, But, you know, to to look at this just as a function of what would be good in an economic sense. And I do not concede that that's the case because this would be a wildly expensive program. And I don't know how we cannot afford the programs we already have. I am here. I am being a little get off my lot on this. I know. But we cannot afford the government we already have. That is a fact. It's just a question of when it all starts coming apart, when the wheels start coming off the bus. Might be 10 years, might be 20, might be in six months if things get really ugly with the economy. Who knows? Probably more like 10 or 20 years. But point is, uh, this is now going to be another massive entitlement that the left is pushing. And I give this guy Orin Cass. I don't know who he is, but he's on Twitter. He pointed out that if you were to go back in time... Back to 1974, you know, because the New York Times just had this piece on, on daycare for all, that was the title, over the weekend. Go back to 1974 and a piece in the New York Times that talked about a daycare for all program, which is what the Soviet Union had. And I just, there's a lot going on here. I want to read to you from this 1974 op-ed in the New York Times, uh, actually, no, I'm sorry, it's not an op-ed, report, it's, it's, it's a straight news story, in the New York Times, um, about what, it, what it's like in the Soviet Union. Quote, Zoya Idenko is the model of the young Soviet mother liberated by a local daycare center that permits her to hold a job. With her three-year-old son in a state nursery, she works as a guide and teaches English at a night school. Under the highly subsidized Soviet daycare system, Mrs. Idenko pays a modest 10 rubles, about $13 per month, for six days a week of childcare. She drops her boy off at about 8 a.m. and picks him up at 7 p.m. He gets three meals and a snack daily. Child rearing never had much attraction for Mrs. Idenko. I went back to work three months after my son was born, she said. I could have waited a year legally and still kept my job. But it was difficult for me to bring up the baby, and I wanted to get out of the house. My mother-in-law lives with us, and she took care of him. The very idea that some American women want to stay at home and raise their own children astonished this 30-year-old woman. For her, work was the only satisfying outlet. And despite her frequent contact with English-speaking foreign tourists, she knew nothing about the range of voluntary and community activities done by non-working women. Don't American women want to get out of the house, she asked. Don't you want to work? Don't you want to earn some money and get independence? Privately, many educated Soviet mothers take a much more skeptical view of the Soviet daycare system and regard the competence of most daycare workers as below desirable standards. Uh, now, let, let me just let me stop there for a second here. Isn't this a little eerie? I mean, this is in the Soviet Union in the 70s. Really, I guess you could argue probably the height in the 60s, 70s, the height of, this, of Soviet power. And this is just a report by the New York Times on the, on the uni, universal daycare system in the Soviet Union. But notice how there's some interesting attitudes among Soviet women. And there's some shortcomings and pitfalls of this whole program that come up. The women who are more educated and better off in the Soviet system do not like the daycare system that they had. I think that's certainly interesting. Um, But it, it, it goes on. The idea that some American women want to stay home and raise children astonished a Russian woman. Don't want to get out of the house, she asked. The vast majority of Soviet families require the salary of a working wife to make ends meet. Repeatedly, Soviet citizens expressed astonishment when they learn that an American father can support a family of two, three, or even four children without his wife's working. Many are also surprised that American women would willingly have more than one child. That is suicide, said one 40-year-old mother. Even with a preschool group for our daughter, we have a hard time coping. Others have little choice in the matter for financial reasons. One young father reported putting an eight-month-old baby into a nursery rather than rather than waiting because the financial strain was too great without the wife working. This man earned roughly double the average family worker salary of 140 uh, rubles, or $186 a month. You know, I think this is... You start to see this here, and they call them upbringers, by the way. That's what they call the people that work in these facilities. Um, but... The, you start to see how what should we be thinking about when we when we talk about this issue of, of universal daycare? If if I had told these uh, these people back in the nineteen seventies that we would win the Cold War and and Oren Cass on on this guy on Twitter he's a blue check on Twitter I don't know who he is but he points this out if we had won the Cold War and you know you go forward a few decades and now in America it's the norm for. Um, you know, in the 70s, Americans stayed home and or rather American women, uh, a lot of them stayed home and that was fine. And one salary. I don't know a lot of families, it feels like, where one salary is sufficient. So we've had all this economic progress. We've had all this growth and explosion of wealth. But our society now is increasingly set up to have a two income earning household in order to support a middle class lifestyle. That's I I don't have an answer to that. I just think that that's noteworthy. I think that that's interesting, Um, and I appreciate that some folks are looking at this and saying, "Hold on a second, something is wrong here." Now I I mentioned that the explosion in um, unwed mothers in this country has led to a lot of people point to, and this is not, you know, I know there are single mothers who are listening to this. This is not to disparage any individual at all, but statistically. Single mothers, particularly single mothers from poor communities who live in particularly poor high crime zip codes, are their their, their children, their male children, are very likely, much more likely than uh, children from any ethnicity and from any socioeconomic status from a two-parent household to have serious problems with crime and all these other things. So, you know the, the, the social science on this is pretty, Clear the social research, um, but you know you add so you have you have a lot of single mothers, and then you also have this economic uh, expectation that you're going to have two a two income earning household. I mean, I think you could look at wages and you know where are real wages now compared to where they were then, and it, it, this is a complicated economic argument. But it's just you know in the '70s one you know you could stay home and have three kids, or, you know a mom could stay home raise three or four kids, husband working middle class job. That would work. I, I, I don't see that as much these days. And certainly that translates into sorry. But then there, uh, then there's this other part of it. And this is where you really are going to see the problem, I think, with having a daycare-for-all model, as they did in the Soviet Union, folks. Didn't exactly work out great for them. Uh, she says, a mother of a 7-year-old girl, this is back to the quote from this piece, said she found a privately run playgroup which was technically semi-illegal because Soviet Union, for her daughter because she felt the upbringers in the state institutions were poorly qualified. Another mother with three children said she objected to the extensive indoctrination in state nurseries and kindergartens with their songs about the motherland, Lenin, and border guards on watch against hostile foreigners. Still others said they disliked having children raised so much uh, by people outside of the family during their early formative years. Hmm. women conceded that the concerns were those of a minority of educated, middle-class intellectuals. Yeah, you don't say. So in the Soviet Union, the people who had a higher level of education, a higher level of most likely uh, economic and intellectual freedom, were like, this whole daycare for all thing is uh, not a good idea. People are not good at their jobs, the children are not bonding with you know, with the mother and with the family the way they should. And there's indoctrination that's going on. Now, I'm sure that the the left would make an argument here that we would do, our, our government would do a better job in this than the Soviet Union would. But I also would want to say that uh, the problems of indoctrination and of incredible expense and of, you know, think of like the VA for babies, you know, Meaning that a, a state-run institution that is supposed to provide, you know, care and services, but the VA is only for obviously for medical needs and for veterans. It's a small percentage of the population, but that's a really state-run enterprise. It's got a lot of problems. Imagine if you expanded that out, you know, times ten or twenty x, and we're trying to provide care and and watching and feeding and nursing and all this stuff to babies across the country. I don't think the state would do a good job of this. I don't think that the state should be in the business of promoting this, which I know is probably very contentious. And I also know for sure we can't find ways to pay for this without dramatically raising taxes, which even people say they want this don't want to do. So a view of the Soviet daycare for all program in the 1970s and now the fight over daycare for all today in the pages of The New York Times. I like a little, little trip down memory lane for everybody there. I hope you found that instructive. A little bit of, little bit of the history can sometimes illuminate our present in interesting ways. We'll be right back it's the fact that someone within the um, the the uh, the white house spent 3 months collecting this information which is really really hard to do it, and it also sends, uh, sheds light on the fact that many people who work for us weren't hired for us and how close are you are to finding who did it uh, i'm hoping to have a resolution on that this week when it find that person or persons and it's likely going to be a career staffer you're going to learn a lot about how hard it is to fire federal workers you know People say, Buck, I don't know. I don't like the term deep state. The president himself told me, what was it now, four or four, five months ago? I don't like term, deep, the term deep state. It's conspiratorial. I actually think it's a pretty accurate description of some of what we see in the federal government. And I used to work in the federal government, so I know something about this. And, you know, this is yet another instance of something that just does not happen to Democrats when they're in office. And that is sabotage from the inside. It is a uniquely left-wing, democratic uh, approach to an issue, approach to an administration, approach to politics, that when you are a federal bureaucrat, you would take it upon yourself to either leak really sensitive information, to obstruct presidential orders and plans, and we keep seeing this happen. I cannot remember this happening a single time during the eight years of the Obama administration. I do not remember somebody leaking the president's uh, confidential schedule at any point. And we know that this keeps happening with Trump. And it's just indicative of the fact that you have a a major uh, confluence and ideological alignment of statists with the party of the state, which is the Democratic Party. So if you're somebody who really believes that government should be bigger and more involved and more that the federal government is is incredibly necessary in all of its missions, not in its just core missions. And it's constitutionally mandated in every you know, Department of Education, you know, Department of Health and Human Services. You, know, you, you break down all these different things. All of that is oh so necessary. We should have even more and we should celebrate all of our federal bureaucrats. If you think those things, you're a Democrat. And if you're a Democrat who thinks those things, you don't like Trump. I think that's quite obvious. But, you know, Mick Mulvaney said that the, the leak of Trump's schedule, which led to all these idiot pundits saying, oh, Trump doesn't even do his job. He doesn't even do his job. Can they just figure out is Trump an evil genius who's single handedly destroying the world and destroying America? Or is he just a lazy bozo eating cheeseburgers all day? It can't be both. I just want them to at least be consistent in their stupidity. Like, pick one flavor of stupid libs but you know trump isn't paranoid they are out to get him and i think that we see yet another instance of it with this leak of the schedule i hope they find out who did it i doubt they will yeah yeah i know people have heard of the aarp it's a pretty well-known organization but what's not nearly as well known is that the aarp is pretty much for retired libs whether they know it or not that's what they're pushing over there a lot of liberal agenda items Under the guise of, oh, we're just trying to help out and represent seniors. I got a better idea for you. AMAC. Why do I recommend AMAC? Well, AMAC gives you all the benefits of AARP, but it supports your values. It's not some liberal left-wing organization. So you get the discounts on car insurance, hotels, roadside assistance, dental plans, but you're also supporting an organization that is pushing for Fixing Social Security, border protection, lower taxes, stuff you believe in. Stand with AMAC as they fight the good fight by becoming a member today. Join right now at amac.us buck. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S slash buck. AMAC is better. Better for you, better for America.
5: Most of the things that have always been aggravating to me is that we have had uh, a policy that makes one superior to the other and we mask it with a conversation that's about justice and a two-state solution when you have policies that clearly prioritize um, one over the other. When I see Israel Institute law that, that recognizes it as a, as, a, as a Jewish state and does not recognize um, the other religions that are, that are living in it, and we still uphold it as a democracy in the Middle East, I almost chuckle because I know that if, you know, we, 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 say, we see that in, in, in any other society, we would criticize it. We would call it out. We do that to Iran. We do that to any other place that sort of upholds its religion.
1: Oh, the Democrats are so excited about some of their new congressmen and congresswomen, particularly the uh, females and the diversity. Of the incoming class and now I have to say that they've run into a couple of problems here um, for example Ilhan Omar she is a uh, an immigrant to this country I believe she's a Somali and then went to Kenya as many Somalis do to flee the situation there and Then moved to Minnesota she is now a member of Congress uh, she seems to have some problems though with Israel and Jews uh, she recently said, and we talked about on the show, that Israel has hypnotized the world, which seemed certainly suspect. And then in response to uh, influence of a pro-Israeli lobby in this country, she tweeted out, it is all about the Benjamins. Well, some people did not like that obvious reference to cold, hard cash and Jews and Israel. In fact, a lot of people, including people in her own party. So she has now apologized. She wrote, anti-Semitism is real. This was today. And I'm grateful for Jewish allies and colleagues who are educating me on the painful history of anti-Semitic tropes. As if she didn't know, my intention is never to offend my constituents or Jewish Americans as a whole. We have to always be willing to step back and think through criticism, just as I expect people to hear me when others attack me for my identity. This is why I unequivocally apologize at the same time. Oh, look at that. I reaffirm the problematic role of lobbyists in our politics, whether it be AIPAC, the NRA, or the fossil fuel industry, because I guess those are the only lobbyists. It's gone on too long. We must address it. So do we accept this apology, and why is Ilhan Omar acceptable to the Democratic Party, even though she definitely doesn't like Israel, and I think she kind of doesn't like Jews? I think that might be fair to say. But I want to bring on my friend David Harsanyi, who is a senior editor at The Federalist, to uh, shed light on this issue. He wrote a piece, The Democrats' Anti-Semitism Problem Isn't Going Away. Mr. Harsani, always good to have you on the program. Thank you for having me. Um, so, I, I got, sorry about the long-winded intro there. I just want to set some of the table here before I, you know, hand the feast over to you. Tell me, I mean, is, is Ilhan Omar an anti-Semite from what we see so far? I mean, is that fair to say?
0: Oh, I think she's an anti-Semite because it's not some slip of the tongue or some sort of, you know... Trope that, uh, that is, that you can confuse in some way. I mean, and she said this before, and she's, everything she said seems, leads me to believe she's an anti Semite. But the thing is, um, it's not the tropes that are the biggest problem in my estimation. Those tropes are manifestations of her, um, of her belief that Israel and the Jewish state should not exist, which to me is func- a functionally anti Semitic and far more serious position than making you know, than throwing some one liners at, at at Jews. So um to me that's the main problem and that's why it's simply apologizing for saying something stupid out loud is not really enough and it doesn't really speak to anything.
1: Now, obviously there there's some interesting there's some interesting dynamics at play when it comes to American politics and support for Israel because you have some, you know, you have some Democrats who are very supportive of Israel. Uh, you have some Democrats, including Jewish Democrats, who are deeply critical of Israel. And people like Ilhan Omar will point to the Democrats who are also, I mean, Glenn Greenwald, for example, Jewish incredible you know it is really an israel basher i don't even think it's critical i mean he, he has a problem with the state of israel and so ilhan omar will point to someone like a glenn greenwald and say see i'm not the only one who thinks that israel's an apartheid state or is engaged in horrible oppression i mean h- how do you how do you untangle all those threats david
0: well it's difficult because I, I i don't think any serious person has ever said that being critical of israel is makes you an anti-Semite. Obviously. Um, you know, Israel has had many different kinds of governments, including socialist governments that people have been critical of and um, from all sides. Um, the problem for me, at least, and my, my view, is that if you, though, believe that the very project of Israel as a Jewish state is somehow uh, false or, a, you know, a colony or, you know, whatever, then you are being anti-Semitic. Jews need a state to defend themselves. History has proven this over and over again. Um, and denying them that ability to have that state, I think, is anti-Semitic in its own way. It doesn't necessarily mean you're always, you know, some big Jew hater, but in the end, that's what it is. I hate to bash on people like Greenwald or whatever, but I mean, I, I think it's it's pretty obvious that that wing of the progressive movement are, you know, have a problem with Jews in general. And it doesn't yeah. matter if you're Jewish or not. There are plenty of self-hating Jews. Karl Marx was a self-hating Jew, and others as well, who, you know, those people probably admire in some way. So,
1: um Yeah, I mean, I give Greenwald credit at least for being he's at least interesting in that he doesn't always he's not just not on the topic of Israel, but just in general, like on Russia collusion, he will call it out for the lunacy that it is. But then on Israel or Greenwald and I have actually, you know, have actually clashed before because, I mean, I think he's he actually has a a sort of fondness for terrorists that comes across. I mean, if you are a radical islamist psychopath glenn greenwald will find a way to explain how you're not that bad which obviously sets me off in all the wrong ways but on russia collusion he's good i mean you know you have look i like people who are free thinkers or at least i like the thought process that they engage in but for someone I, like I an, with all of that you can't yeah. pour
0: into his soul and know what he thinks about jews or not right i mean but the bottom line is, and I do agree with everything you just said, I think he's actually far more interesting and maybe far more honest than many other progressives. I think that that's great. And, uh, but the bottom line is, he seems to believe, I think at least from reading him, that terrorists, you know, Hamas to al-Qaeda to anyone else, has a, legitimate case of, you know, has a legitimate case to do what they do because of American imperialism or Israeli imperialism or whatever. And I think that's a really immoral position to take. So that's my problem with
1: him. It is, yeah, no, look, and, and I, I brought his name into this conversation, so I just kind of wanted to give a, a fuller context for what I read again as his views and also have debated him, you know, once or twice in the past. Um, but it, on this point about the rising anti-Semitism, uh, is there rising anti-Semitism in the Democratic Party? I mean, I've, I think I've seen uh, Mark Levin, some other folks saying that this isn't just a thing. It's a thing that's getting worse. Do you see that as the case, or are we just seeing it now because, you know, we can look back and and look at photos of, say, Obama shaking Farrakhan's hand or look at Farrakhan's Twitter account and see it is not suspended, but learn to code will get you suspended. Is it getting worse or are we just more aware of it on the left?
0: Uh, Definitely getting worse. Um, I mean, I'm not not a spring chicken, right? I've been around. I know what the uh, Democratic Party was like then and now, I think Obama had a lot to do. Listen, Obama's a reflection of where the Democrats were going. He's not a a person, I mean, he led in that direction as well, but obviously he's also a reflection of voters, and I think we saw it then, and he's now changed the entire dynamic of Israel's support in America. If you notice, it's kind of like, even right now in the Democratic Party, it's kind of young against old, in a way. The younger, the freshmen, a lot of them are, you know, very... You know, reluctant to say anything bad about you know Omar or anyone else like that. But the it's old, the older sort of people who do. I think that's the split. And progressives, because they're hard left, are anti-Israel because they view it as a colonizing force, and with that comes a lot of anti-Semitism, and it always has. We've seen it on college campuses, and now it's bleeding into uh, mainstream politics.
1: And you know, there's Rashida Talib as well, who I don't know. I don't know who. You- I mean, do you have an opinion on, on who's been more egregious in this regard, <laughs> Tlaib or Omar? Are they pretty much in the same boat?
0: I think they're in the same boat. And those are obviously, uh, she's, a, you know, she's a Palestinian and she has sort of, you know, perhaps you could forgive that a bit, even though I, I think she's completely wrong on the reasons why these things are happening. I mean, I don't want to forgive her, but maybe some people might want to. Um, but in the end, we have to judge people on the things they say and the positions they take. And both. You know, didn't we, we just learned today that uh, she had written for a Farrakhan newspaper in 2006.
5: Um, yeah. Can you
0: imagine? Uh, can you imagine a Republican congressman writing for the David Duke newsletter and then being able to just skirt by and, and no one, you know, even finding that, no one even fact-checking that, OPPO research, nothing. Um, it's just, it's, it's hard to imagine.
1: Yeah, and, and you know, and this is this gets into an area where, where I mean, I have some opinions from my my previous life, and I, I think, you know, because because there's a there's a, um, on the one hand, I think that Omar and Tlaib, they're new, they, they, there's this excitement around them, they're women and they're minorities, so there's this, this particular, you know, this particular shroud of protection around them, you know, they can get away with saying more, I mean, I think, I think that that's patently obvious, but you know, you touched on a couple of things, with Omar, I found it interesting that one, this is a Somali who lived in Kenya. I mean, she, she had a, a somewhat similar route in that sense to Ayon Hirsi Ali, who I think is brilliant and, and has really changed the, the global discourse in some ways on, on some of these issues, uh, about Islam specifically. Um, but sh- her fixation on Israel is, one, telling, and two, uh, telling as in I think it tells us a lot about what she really thinks, uh, because it doesn't come from a Palestinian, you know, she doesn't have any personal connection to Israel or interaction with Israel at all. But beyond that, David the Muslim world is full of, I mean, I'm just, the Muslim world is, uh, there's a lot of people in the Muslim world who are deeply anti-Semitic. I mean, and anybody who says otherwise does not know what the heck they're talking about.
0: No, I mean, I don't know if anyone's done a poll in, a, in the United States where I think this, you know, the Muslim community has, is not probably that way. But, uh, you know, across the world, it's very different. It's high, high levels of anti-Semitism. 70, 80% of people are. So that's a problem. And, um, And, uh, it's, it's something we're not allowed to talk about. Like every time I mention Omar, I'm told she's the first Muslim congresswoman, as if that somehow should, should dissuade me from being critical of her. I don't care if she's the first Martian in Congress. It doesn't matter when you're saying crazy things. That's, it's, it's unfortunate actually that she's that kind of person. She's an anti-Semite, and uh, you know she act, we we act like she's twelve years old, and she's learning. She's a thirty-seven-year-old woman elected to Congress. She doesn't know how not to be a bigot yet. I mean, I, I think that that's just unlikely. So, um, I just think we Do you have think to this be causes any that.
1: problems from from a, from a, like a political electoral, you know, who's going to win elections perspective. Does this uh, this cause issues? You think for the Democrats?
0: I don't know. Um, probably not many, frankly, because you know it's it's complicated but there's been a long-term project on on the left in in the Jewish community to to disconnect Jews from Israel to disconnect them actually from their faith in a way and pretend that Judaism is just sort of an outgrowth of liberalism and uh, this is a, obviously a longer discussion but i think that's bearing fruit and uh, i'm not saying all Jews are that way but uh, you know the reform movement for instance within Judaism is actually just a liberal advocacy group at this point and it's it's really distressing that we we can't sort of keep those, you know, segregate those communities into, into, you know, and compartmentalize our faith and our politics, because politics and faith now are almost the same thing for most people.
1: David Harsanyi, everybody, check out his latest at The Federalist. He is taking the Democrats to task for their anti-Semitism problem. David, always good to have you on, my friend. Thanks for making the time.
0: Thanks for having me, man.
1: Tim, we'll be back in just a moment. Folks, my friends, three days left until Valentine's. And I know you can get flowers from all these different places, but don't you want the most beautiful, aromatic, eye popping, perfect roses? That's what I want. That's why I've hooked up Miss Molly. Don't tell her, it's a secret. With two dozen beautiful roses to be delivered on Valentine's Day from 1 800 Flowers. Guys, gals, this is the way to go, okay? I order every year on Valentine's from my Rose Authority, 1-800-Flowers.com. I recommend you do too. Get on it now, don't wait. To order 18 red roses for Valentine's Day for your sweetheart for only $29.99 or upgrade to 24 assorted roses plus a vase for $10 more, go to 1-800-Flowers.com, click the radio icon and enter code BUCK. That's 1-800-Flowers.com. Enter promo code BUCK. You got to hurry. Got to jump on this right now because the offer expires today.
4: In our nation's heartland, at a time when we must heal the heart of our democracy and renew our commitment to the common good, I stand before you as the granddaughter of an iron ore miner as the daughter of a teacher and a newspaper man, as the first woman elected to the United States Senate from the state of Minnesota to announce my candidacy for president of the United States.
1: (laughs) So if you missed it, that was Amy Klobuchar from, uh, from Minnesota. I think She was the one, I I think that my, my, uh, my buddy, Pete Hegseth from Fox news, he ran for Senate when I first met him, he had just run for Senate in Minnesota. He lost in the primary, but I think Klobuchar was the one who beat the guy who won in that primary. But anyway, so Klobuchar, that was the first time I heard of her. And you know, now she's, uh, she's out there. I, I hope I have, I might, I might have that one wrong. Don't quote me on that, but I think I'm right. Um, but now she's announced that she's running for president, and it was amazing because she announced it, and it's, oh, it's very Minnesota, yeah? Uh, she, she, you know, the Minnesotans listening to this are like, Buck, don't even try. Your Minnesota your Minnesota accent game is so weak. Don't you know? Um, but I sound a little bit like a bad Mrs. Doubtfire when I try to sound like I'm from Minnesota. Here's the thing. I always assume everybody from Minnesota is so nice. I used to go camping in Minnesota with my dad and my brothers. We went for years. Ely, Eli, Ely, Ely. That's right, Ely, not Eli. Ely, Minnesota. We went for years. Critical Boundary, uh, the Boundary Waters, the Critical Wilderness Area. I remember going up there. And everybody in Minnesota was so nice. What happened up there, though, where the state has gone practically communist? That's part one. It has the climate of Siberia. That's part two. And and, you, you know, some of these people that come out of here are not that nice, at least the Democrats. You get Al Franken, a mean, nasty, grasping groper. And now you got Klobuchar, who it turns out is not a nice lady. I can tell you this whenever you hear stories um, about somebody who's a Democrat. If it's a Republican, there'll be, like, video evidence of it, and they'll do exposés in the front page. So you'll, you, you'll see a Republican being mean to staff. You'll know about it, right? But whenever you see stories about a Democrat in media, uh, politics, Hollywood, even any of it, about how they're abusive to staff, it's almost always true. I mean, I can't think of a time where I read about a Democrat who maybe was abusive to staff, and it didn't turn out, oh, my gosh, that person's a... That person's a a terror, a, a, the Cruella DeVille of Democrat politics. And uh, Amy Klobuchar, man, I hated Cruella DeVille. She wanted to make all those cute puppies, all those cute Dalmatians into a coat. Side note, Dalmatians, really beautiful to look at, not very nice dogs in terms of their temperament. And, uh, to the Dalmatian owners out there, you can get mad at me if you want. I read this stuff from the American Kennel Club, and right? I'm telling you. Yours may be sweet. Your, your Fufu or Rufus or whatever may be adorable, but generally Dalmatians are known to not have a particularly sweet temperament. I'm just telling, I just bring you the truth, folks. I just bring you the truth. Uh, anyway, I didn't like Corolla Deville, and I don't think I'm going to like Amy Klobuchar, who uh, gave this announcement, because all the stories now are about how she throws objects. I mean, she's not just nasty to staff. Uh. She throws objects at staff like she threw a purse at a staff member. She people quit in tears because she's so mean and so nasty. And I'm telling you, she this the the media covers this up because they'll say, oh, it's sexist to criticize a woman for being mean. If she were a man, they would just say he's being assertive. No, that's not true. I have very colorful language for a lot of men that I know in media in particular who treat their staffs badly. Okay, I do not I do not say that, oh, so and so is assertive like. Keith Olbermann was famously vicious to his staff. Like, anybody in media knew that. Nobody said that he was assertive. They said he was an SOB POS, okay? So I hate this this nonsense argument. How, oh, they're just saying it she's a woman. No, I'm sure she's nasty. But I like how Trump said, she announced this, and he said, Amy Klobuchar announced she's running for president, talking proudly of fighting global warming while standing in a virtual blizzard of snow, ice, and freezing temperatures. Bad timing. By the end of her speech, she looked like a snowman, woman. Trump. Sometimes Trump, I just got to say it, man. You complete me. I hate awards ceremonies. I really think that when you get beyond high school, we should get rid of award ceremonies. Okay, so before we dive into this discussion, a couple of exceptions uh, Military awards, military decorations, not not a part of this discussion. Okay, um, awards for real things, for real heroism. You know that that's that's something else. Obviously, uh, we'll we'll put that aside. But awards for the arts and for media, I just I just don't get it. And I do feel like people in the media, because they're so both insecure and so in love with themselves at the same time, that's why you have all this stuff. I mean, whenever I hear somebody say now, you know, I was on a show that was Emmy nominated. I'm always like, "Okay, well, were you nominated for best actor or were you just on the staff of the show that got nominated? Like, is that I mean, if you're the catering guy on the Emmy nominated, you know, Big Bang Theory or something, I'm happy for your professional success. But I don't think that we need to hear about how you are Emmy nominated. Feel the same way about all these journalists and these journalism awards. Ooh, I got a Pulitzer, I got a Peabody, I got, there's all these different, I can't even keep track of all this stuff. Who cares? You know, the, the upside of writing a great piece is a lot of people reading it and maybe you having some sort of influence on an important issue or on a national conversation or just showing the best of your craft. And I just feel like most most of you listening, for example, whatever your job is, the reward for a job well done Is being good at your job and knowing that and getting paid to do that job that you're good at, whatever that job is. And and, you know, I I wish that we would have in our culture more of a celebration of just being good at what you do, whatever that is. You know, this is some of you will probably think of the movie uh, or if you've seen it, you'll think back to, you know, Jiro Dreams of Sushi which is a really, really good documentary about one of the most famous, uh, famous little sushi restaurants in the world that's in a subway stop in Tokyo. I forget what it's called. Um, and the main guy is obviously named Jiro. And, you know, he has this apprentice who spends 10 years trying to make the perfect tamago, which is the little egg custard. And after 10 years, finally once, his, his mentor, Jiro, who's the most amazing sushi chef, you know, in the world, et cetera, get, he, he finally gets it right. And he tells him, this is right. And he cries. Now, you don't have to necessarily cry because you make your Tamago perfectly, but whatever you're doing, doing that thing. I think it's St. Francis de Sales who says, be exactly who you are and be that perfectly. Or do not wish to be anything but what you are and be that perfectly. That's why I mean, this whole award ceremony thing for all these mini types, Like this is my long way of saying, I didn't even know the Grammys were on last night. I woke up this morning. I went to do Rising, and they're like, are we going to do a segment on the Grammys? I'm like, what? What? Well, it turns out that uh, I'm not the only one. An all-time low for the, uh, in, in the demo at least, for the Grammys. I, I just don't understand why people care about this. Um, and, and I guess more and more people are agreeing with me because it just strikes me as incredibly self-indulgent and uh, and unnecessary and self-referential, just the whole, the whole thing. Also, I think the state of American music right now is, well, uh, country music aside, because I don't know anything about country music, which is something that I should really address. Some of you right now are booing me, and I, I, I earned that. I did start listening to punk rock recently, old punk rock, like uh, the New York Dolls and the Ramones and... Because I, I didn't really, and so if any of you have country rock suggestions for me, like really great contemporary, contemporary country music, um, country music, I don't know if I said country rock, country music, uh, send it to me, facebook.com slash Because other than country, which I cannot speak to, I think the state of music in America right now is pretty terrible. So I definitely didn't watch the Grammys, but I do want to do roll call in a moment.
0: Hey, Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call.
1: You know, I started listening to some uh, some dubstep again. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you guys. I don't even like that expression because I never lie to you guys. But I can't lie to you. But listen to some dubstep as I work out. And if you pick the right stuff, I think you can actually do a pretty, pretty good job. Uh, so we have... Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton for those of you who like to get in on the roll call action. First up is Andres. Howdy, Buck. Getting caught up on your podcast, currently on a monument to left-wing idiocy, I thought to note something about AOC. AOC may be great at theatrics, but primarily to those that relate or have a tendency to absorb abstract left-wing concepts. As such, I don't believe she, the individual is at the heart of this political hallucination. Just a thought. What if senior Democrats find AOC to be the perfect canary in the coal mine to test Operation Crazy Eyes? And this way they can test the waters to essentially see what happens so others don't have to risk further embarrassment. AOC will get the support and coaching she needs in order to function as the conductor on the crazy train. She'll do it. She'll say anything. Um... It's an interesting theory. I mean, I think that AOC really believes she's not knowledgeable enough to not believe what she's saying um, and still say it, or rather, she's not knowledgeable enough to be cynical about what she's saying. That's what I was trying to say. Uh, I, I don't think that she even knows how wrong she is and what she says. She believes based on the way that she says that says things and, and also just the the approach of the social justice left. I can hear it in her voice. I mean, she is steeped in the approach to not just politics, but life that you get from HuffPo and salon.com and talking points memo and daily co's. And, you know, I have a whole, I think I've mentioned this to you before. I have a whole left wing web browser that I keep open. I mean, he, I, I, my web browser has all those things I just said, HuffPost, daily Coast. um, uh, Politico, MSNBC, CNN, BuzzFeed. Uh, well, it used to have Gawker. I need to get rid of that. Gawker's dead now. Uh, you just go to Dare Spiegel, Bloomberg, all this, all this stuff. I mean, I, I have to keep in touch with the left so I know how crazy they are and what kind of crazy they are. And one of the ways to do that is to read their stuff. So I read their stuff, and I, I think Ocasio-Cortez is in earnest about the things that she says. I really do. I think that she believes this stuff, as nuts as it is. Dave writes, Shields High Buck, just listened to your show on Friday's podcast. Loved your segment on the Green New Deal. But I think the point not being discussed is that the original New Deal failed. Had anybody asked AOC what everybody's supposed to do for a living after all the building retrofits are complete? Make work projects have an ending. They are not a career. David, you raise a very interesting point there. Um, no, I don't think that she... I, 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 the the left has managed to rewrite history of the New Deal so that we are to believe that, that FDR essentially saved the American economy. That the FDR, uh, public works projects, all the different ways that... There was a mobilization of people to work for the state in a time of war, but it was very much a war on, you know, economic malaise. I mean, they they used the same the same kind of rhetoric. They didn't really call it a war on poverty, per se, but the same idea uh, that it it did not work the way that liberals have been told that it worked. Uh, But you see that. And unfortunately, Ocasio-Cortez does not. It's also interesting that we are reminded regularly by the media of the failings of previous presidents and and previous leaders in this country stretching back for centuries, really. But for some reason, the internment of Japanese Americans into concentration camps, that is excused for FDR uh, in that it is not discussed. They won't they won't say that it was okay, but they will omit it from the conversation they will omit it they will not engage uh in much analysis of that karen writes if you don't like going to the gym get an exercise mat some dumbbells and leg weights and work out in front of netflix in your apartment to kill uh kill to <laughs> kill kill two birds with one stone as they used to say you know karen i've actually done a fair amount of of home workout stuff it, it's great uh, you know especially when you realize how much of a a challenge your own body weight can be and really i, I think that a great measure of, of fitness one that i need to work on is your ability to control and stabilize and move your own body weight effectively i mean that's why you know with all this exercise craze stuff and i've been talking to friends recently who are oh i do barry's boot camp i don't know how many of you even know what barry's boot camp is producer mike you ever done barry's boot camp the uh Lady instructors are apparently quite lovely. Uh, But, you know, Barry's Boot Camp and uh, what's this other Peloton where you can pay a lot of money to have an exercise bike in your living room or your bedroom. All these different advanced and boutique. I believe they call it boutique fitness crazes across the country uh, that you look at the old school stuff they have people do in the military. You know, when you think of boot camp, you think of doing push-ups, jogging pull-ups um, and carrying heavy stuff, that pretty much covers it and, and really your ability to do push-ups and pull-ups, especially for uh, for the male physique, gives you a very good indicator of your upper body strength and, and where you really are. so you know I, I see guys sometimes and, and I'm by no means any kind of expert or anything like that. I mean I'm I'm a, I'm a enthusiastic uh, maybe advanced beginner in all things all things gym. But I see guys that are in there and they're doing a lot of like wrist curls and shoulder shrugs and stuff. And, you know, for the experts, yeah, that stuff, you know, you got to hone that one, you know, muscle group. But for most of us, it's the, the basics will actually get you pretty far. Um, and somebody who has, you know, gained and lost weight multiple times, substantial amounts of weight multiple times throughout his life. That's been my experience. So. Uh, any of you who, by the way, have like personal physical transformation stories or things, you know, let me know, man. I, I love reading about that stuff. Um, facebookcom slash Sex. And one of my favorite Instagram accounts is is a body transformations account that's supposed to be a fitspiration, or I think that's what you call it, fitspiration, where people see it. and it's amazing what individuals can can accomplish. Uh, Andrew writes. I caught your podcast. Don't be so hard on yourself. I myself once repeated a mistaken etymology someone had I trusted had told me, too. By the way, I re- remember the other thing you'd said recently that really meshed with my long-held beliefs. You labeled the left as having no coherent ideology other than to tear everything good and decent down, and you labeled them iconoclasts. You don't just keep your finger on the pulse of the news. You see through the Goebbels propaganda machine for what it truly is. And what hides behind it? Shields high. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you, Andrew, on both counts. I'm always very frustrated when I share any piece of knowledge in the show that I then have to correct because it's not knowledge. It's faux knowledge or whatever. Um, Or how about just wrong, Buck? It's wrong. And uh, that's something that I don't like having to do, but I will do it because I want to tell you the right stuff. And then as to the left's uh, desire to tear things down, I, I think that's very much the case. And I'm glad that uh, I'm not alone on that one. A gentleman named Jar writes Only thing AOC was missing was who's coming with me? Who's coming with me? You could call me sentimental, but the fish are coming with me. Yeah, I, I know what we're going for. The little Jerry Maguire reference. Jerry Maguire is a great movie. Although I do remember still with it seared into my brain that I tried to watch it once at my grandparents' house. And I figured I told them there was some profanity, and they were okay with that. But my grandmother, uh, my my wonderful and, and uh, dearly departed grandmother, sat down with me to watch Jerry Maguire, and she happened to sit down in about uh, about two minutes before a a scene in Jerry Maguire that is memorable um, and involves uh, loud female. I can't, you know what? I can't even. I can't even go there guys. I got to just All I'm telling you is that Jerry Maguire is a great movie but, you know, it's not for not for the kids. Not for the kids. Uh there's Unless you I guess you could probably the TV version of it where they cut out the curses and the and the one sex scene is probably fine. Uh that kid was really funny. Whatever happened, do we know what happened to him? Jonathan Lipnicki. I even remember the name. Did he turn into one of those you know, celebrity kids who ends up uh You know, chasing down smack on the wrong side of town or something? Do we know? No? I don't know what happened to him, but... The human head weighs eight pounds. John writes, Heard a great AOC joke yesterday. What happens when AOC eats ice cream too fast? Answer, nothing. Womp, womp. Um, Thank you for sharing the joke. Uh, Patrick writes, has really missed her opportunity to use her struggle for child care during law school as an excuse for infanticide. Whoa, Patrick, that's, it's that quite a turn you just pulled there. NJ writes, Hey Buck, I love the show. I just finished with Black Panther and I have to agree with you. It is hot garbage, lame script, terrible acting, and the social justice stuff throughout. Dreadful, just dreadful. Anyway, keep up the great work. Shields high. You know what? Thank you. I'm giving it a little round. I'm, somebody else will be honest about Black Panther. Black Panther's a terrible movie. All right, Brett easton ellis I think, recently, the pretty well-known Gen X or Gen Y or whatever author, Brett Easton Ellis uh, came out and said that nobody in Hollywood really likes Black Panther. And it's true. It's a bad movie. You can enjoy it. I Look, Point Break is a bad movie. I love Point Break. The Rock is kind of a bad movie. I love The Rock. You don't have to tell me that it's great. I love it. It's just not a good movie. It's like makes no sense. The plot is bizarre. There are huge plot holes in it that you know we could talk about all day. Uh, you know, I... I the my problem with Black Panther was not only is it a bad movie, I didn't find it that enjoyable to watch. If you enjoy it, great. I can't tell you what to enjoy and what not to, but the plot, the acting, it's just it's just ridiculous. It's the most advanced society in the world, but they pick their leader by having a hand-to-hand combat fight to the death in uh, like uh an elevated jacuzzi basically. I mean it it makes it makes no sense, folks. Okay? It's just just free yourself to think freely about Black Panther. And you will feel much. You're like, yeah, I know I've been told I have to like this. I don't, I don't have to like this. I don't. I'm telling you, it's okay. Team, we'll have more coming up tomorrow. I will talk to you then. Shield tie. Global verification is the only dual certified and veteran-owned background investigation and vetting company out there. If if you need any kind of investigative work, if you need background checks on employees, I mean this is this is something that my friends at Global Verification Network excel at. No matter what size company, they have risk mitigation experts who will talk to you about the specifics of your needs, handle whatever issues you might have or any any time constraint concerns. They will tailor make the service for you. You need to check them out. Even if you've got somebody who currently does your background checks, call Global Verification and see if they can get you a better deal, better service, better results. Call 877-695-1179. That's 877-695-1179. Or go to mygvn.com. Again, that's mygvn.com. And team, make sure you let them know that Team Buck sent you.